0: Welcome back to cooking the books with me Jilly Smith the podcast which digs just a little deeper into the minds behind the best of the food books through four food moments and this week I'm with early food blogger and publisher of Pitt magazine Helen Graves whose book Life Fire is about so much more than a summer barbecue you
1: know there's a there's a, a tendency to talk about these different cultures in in terms of discovery and They've actually always been there. You know, these people have always been there. They've always been cooking this way. It's just that we've
0: not been interested. This is a book about Helen's London, through some of the wonderfully diverse cultures which cook over open fire. I asked her how far she'd veered off the path of the typical British Barbie.
1: When I was thinking about writing this book, I really wanted to steer it away from sort of beer and burgers and what I call um, bangers and boob aprons. (laughs) So, you know, sausages and that sort of stereotype of the man sort of standing in front of the barbecue with his tongs and not letting anyone else get near it. Um, and I thought, you know, there are so many different cultures that cook over fire. And and for many of those cultures, it is simply just called cooking, really. You know, it's not really a case of, you know, we're going to have a barbecue. And I just think I wanted to bring in some of those different techniques, some of those different flavours, and also just um, sort of get across to people that it's not just about meat as well. That it's just really important to me that there are so many different wonderful vegetables, there's so much wonderful seafood and also things like breads and
0: maybe even desserts beyond, you know, stuffing chocolate into a banana. You know, in on on Cooking the Books, you know, I've had Honey & Co. We've had all sorts of people representing the kind of the the open fire cooking, you know, streets filled with the smell of lamb kebabs and evening skies lit by wooden coals in burning carts. You know, that is what open fire is all about. I mean, I'm just about to do Gil Mellor, actually, his beautiful Mm. new book Outside. And it's all about the romance of of cooking on the beach. and, And it's very, very simple, but it comes with a lot of story. But what your book is about is it's about the diaspora of London. It's about British barbecues. It's about tandoors and jerk drums in London. And that's what I found so fascinating about it. Why did you want to tell this story of your London? I think
1: it's because I was trying to think of a way of of telling my own food story, but I didn't want to just cherry pick from different cultures, which, you know, I think the food writing community has been perhaps a little bit guilty of in the past, or in some cases, a lot guilty of and I just wanted to, pe- to give people the opportunity to tell stories in their own words in the book uh, which is why I've sort of interviewed people from d- diaspora communities and I wanted to tell people about the the influence that their cooking has had on my cooking um, so we've got people cooking like Jamaican jerk chicken, um, Nigerian suya, we've got Turkish otakbashi. um my good friend Makta, who's from Eritrea, we came up with a sort of like um, London Eritrean fusion cuisine that we basically just made up ourselves. <laughs> and um, it's, there are actually stories from people cooking elsewhere in the UK as well. But they are lots more from London, because it's just been part of my own personal food journey. Um, and those people I wanted to honour the the influence that they had on my cooking. Um, Although I do mention, you know, people smoking fish up in the north of England um, and, you know, cooking kind of herring, smoking mackerel, smoking salmon, that kind of thing.
0: You know, the... the the book is so full of stories and people and voice and experience that it seems a bit churlish to kind of say. So, what kit do we need at this point? You know, I think maybe we'll mm. get to that. You know, how can we actually do this food ourselves? Um, because most of it is very simple. It is street food. It's it's not mm. about posh kit, but. You know, let's start painting some pictures by going into your food moments. Your first food moment is with old James Weller from oh, yeah. Cabrito, who we know very well. Uh, he's an award-winning goat. I mean, it was all about actually saving billy goats. Billy goats have always been euthanized at birth, and James was one of the, the principal players in, in saving their lives by creating a market for goat. You in your first food moment, talk about how he came and barbecued goat for you. Tell us about that Basically, we
1: wanted to feature James in Pit, which is the magazine that I edit, um, which started out as a live fire exclusive magazine. Now it's more of a general food magazine. We say it has roots in food and fire. Um, But we wanted to feature James and we wanted him to cook some goat over the barbecue and he said to us well (laughs) why don't I come and cook a gigantic goat shawarma for 30 people and we said yes okay (laughs) that sounds like a lot of fun so we hired this (laughs) um actually we didn't hire it James had a mate who had this gigantic sort of spit um and we I think James put a whole goat onto it Um, so it's, if you imagine a horizontal shawarma, it's been marinated overnight in kind of yogurt and wonderful, you know, cumin, coriander, chili, garlic, all the good stuff. Um, and then it's set up over coals and it's just kind of slowly rotating for hours and hours and hours. And, um, he was like, right, well, we need some people to eat it. So we said, okay, fine. We invited all our friends. Um, and then it's almost as if the moment he set up this goat shawarma, it just began to snow. And it was just this, incredible snowstorm in this south london garden and to be fair it was like february or something <laughs> so you know we should have seen it coming <laughs> um and it, the, the entire garden just turned into a complete mud bath you know people were sliding around falling over um but james was just stood there happily at the end of the garden just rotating this um shawarma and either way shawamas are cooked they um they're not all It's not all cooked at the same time because of the thickness of the meat. So he was just kind of shaving off the cooked bits on the outside, putting them into pita breads with some salad and some lemon juice and a little sumac and onion salad and then handing it out to everyone. Um, and do you know what? We just had the best time that day. It was a complete and utter mess and it was complete chaos. But it just it, it just it tells the story of barbecue, really, which is that barbecue just brings that that central focal point yeah. to a gathering And I like to say it's almost like gloves off entertaining. You know, it's like, you know, when there's a barbecue, you're always going to have a good time. Absolutely guaranteed.
0: Yeah, and it also makes another major point that your book does really take us through the year. And it does say you can absolutely do uh, live fire cooking in the middle of winter i mean having told the goat
1: shawarma story is perhaps not the greatest example to encourage people to start uh, cooking outdoors look i'm not saying to you you should stand in the rain in the middle of winter with a brolly and um you know, just be miserable and cold. That's not what I mean at all. what I'm saying is that there are some really beautiful seasonal ingredients that really do benefit from being cooked over fire. Because when you cook over fire, it it brings that extra dimension of flavour, which is char and smoke. Um, And it's about harnessing that. And there are some ingredients that are available, for example, in the autumn months, like um, there's a recipe in the book for a a whole pumpkin and it's hollowed out and it's stuffed with beer and cheese and it becomes a wonderful fondue. And that is just the, the greatest sort of bonfire night centrepiece. Everybody kind of digs into it, um, dips their pieces of bread in, and, you know, or you could make a, a there's a recipe in there for a smoked onion soup, um, where you could just have a mug of that around the bonfire, it's just the most wonderful thing ever. So sometimes it's about just putting something in the barbecue, walking away. And just closing the lid, you know, and just not, you're not necessarily spending that time as you would for a summer ingredient like a kebab, you know, standing there turning it every five seconds. Um, So the the autumn and winter chapters are definitely shorter. um, And I have also provided instructions for cooking indoors for every, pretty much every recipe because I know that it's not everybody's cup of tea. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but I do love that idea of that, you know, the blackened leeks and the fat steaks in the middle of winter. And, you know, a lot of people all over the world do have outdoor kitchens, don't they? It gives a sort of a a lovely romance, actually, but it does mean that you can cook Mm. in the winter and sort of bring the outside in all year round. You know, when we go into the next food moment, you know, you're you're actually making jerk chicken uh, with Bill of J.B. Soul Food. Um, now, that, again, isn't something that's limited to the no, summer,
1: is it? No, I absolutely love jerk chicken. And it's something I became... Well, I just could not stop eating when I first moved to South London and specifically when I first moved to Peckham. And I vividly remember walking down Peckham High Street and getting this waft of scented smoke from the jerk drum. And it was heavy with kind of all and scotch bonnet peppers and thyme and garlic and all those wonderful ingredients that you have in a jerk marinade. And I just basically followed my nose around the corner. And that's where I found um, Bill Halls, whose his story is in the book, who owns JB's Soul Food in Peckham. And they make so much jerk chicken every week with his wife, Jennifer, I should say. Um, And he's one of the few people that I've found cooking jerk in London who still has just a drum, just one jerk drum, which is an old oil barrel just on stilts that's been sort of adapted. Um, And he had all this chicken stuffed into there and there was so much smoke coming out of there. And we just became friends. And, you know, I still go there a couple of times a week because it's so close to my house um but he's very very protective of his recipe which is completely understandable so that's why his specific jerk recipe doesn't feature in the book and that's why mine is in there instead i would just like to say i'm in no way saying that i could cook better jerk (laughs) than a professional um but um, i'm just (laughs) i just had a go and um it it seems to go down well
0: but, you know, it's about sitting and chatting about stories as well. And, you know, he does point out that Jerk is the cooked on an oil drum, which he made himself, you know, is post-slavery. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to Kelpner Wolfe um, fairly yeah. recently about her beautiful book, Eat, Share, Love, which again is filled with stories of the yeah. diaspora in Britain. And you get all these amazing immigrant yep. stories. And she was doing a, a, a Jerk recipe with with somebody who told her that before slavery was over people used to cook yeah. in a pit and you'll know this because they didn't want the smoke to That's be seen right because they didn't want to be found I mean, that's so poignant.
1: So poignant. I mean, as you say, jerk chicken came from a group of uh, people called the Maroons. They were a group of enslaved African people brought to Jamaica by the Spanish. And when the Spanish were forced out by the British, the Maroons headed to the hills. You know, they fled. Obviously, they didn't want to be found because they didn't want to be enslaved again. And they started cooking the wild boar that lived there, spicing it with the local allspice berries um, but as you, as you say, um, at first, obviously, they didn't want to be found. So they would cook the boar underground in a pit. Um, and then as time went by, it wasn't such a problem. And then they began to cook it over live fire. And that's when jerk became what it is today. Because, you know, jerk cooks will say to you now, jerk is about the smoke. It's you know it's such an important part of the flavour profile, and that's why I don't have an alternative method for cooking it indoors in the book because I really thought that would just do a disservice to the whole
0: history of the dish. Really, moving through your London, you go into your third food moment. Your friends Magda and Jack from London yeah. Kitchen.
1: They used to be in Nettle Market. Um, they're not anymore. They are. They now do um, supper clubs and pop ups, and they obviously took a break throughout the pandemic, an enforced break, Um, but now they're back.
0: They make an Eritrean-London barbecue fusion, as you call it. It's a mix of Mexican and Ethiopian and Eritrean. It's absolutely fascinating. Tell us about them and tell us about the food in this food. Well, I first
1: met Macta and Jack at the store when they when they used to have it in Nettle Market. And I just rocked up one day. I think I'd been out the night before and I was a little bit worse for wear. And I turned up and I, it was a sort of a, a bar style seating and just around the, the kitchen area where Macta was cooking. And I remember she just... She just gave me all this lovely, wonderful spiced tea. And I. she used to, because, you know, um, in Eritrea and Ethiopia, they have uh, the, the spiced, it's not really a flatbread, it's like a cross between a flatbread and a pancake called injera. And all the food is served on top of that. And Max didn't serve that at the stall because she said, look, I can't make this gigantic injera with a million stews on top work in a street food situation. So what she did was she made these tacos, which were just small portions of injera in, in in the size of a taco with um beautiful spice stews and and what they call watts on top um all spiced with Burberry, which is the sort of like a rusty red very spicy spice mix that's used to flavor many many dishes and she fed me these tacos and and this tea and just completely revived me <laughs> and then after that i just became a bit obsessed with the food to be honest um so when when, we, when I was thinking about doing the book, I said, do you want to be involved in some way? And she said, yes, definitely. Um, just come round. So I went round to their house at like 9am. And the first thing she did was was, was thrust this shot of a which is like an Uzo style spirit into my hands. I said, here, have this. I said, okay, Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's going to be so we we did these shots and um then she got really worried that I was going to be really drunk for the whole day so she said look I'll make you some breakfast this is just what Macta is like she's the hospitality is just second to none she said I'll make you some breakfast so we had fit fit which is what um what you make with the injera that's left over from the night before. So it's just cut it up into strips and fry it with whatever you've got, like tomatoes, a bit of onion, you know, some garlic and berberry. always berberry, Um and have it with some yoghurt. And I think she put an egg on there as well. And it was just completely, again, she just saved my life. <laughs> I think this is Magda's skill. She, she can see what I need at any given moment in terms of food and drink and just gives it to me. Anyway, when it came to the barbecue... <laughs> she really she does when it came to the barbecue um we said like look well what should we do because she doesn't really do barbecue
0: because it's not part of eritrean culture and that's the point exactly it's not it's street food isn't even part of eritrean culture either they do eat at home but, but you wanted to do something because of the extraordinary nature of the food that you tasted at the Exactly.
1: At the and I just thought, again, you know, this woman is, is a part of my food story. I really just want her to be involved. And I just really respect her and I love her food. So let's do something. and. So she said, well, let's do something with um, zigni sauce. And Zigney sauce is uh, a sauce with a base of many, many onions. And I mean many onions. So when I got there, she had this huge stock pot. And she actually had it on an induction hob outside because she said, look, it's going to make my house just spark completely of onions for a week. And um, in it, very, 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 <laughs> very finely chopped onion and And watch the beginning of the sauce, what you do is you cook it, but you don 't cook it with any fat at all, so you know normally when I would start frying an onion i 'd start it off with some butter or some oil or something, but there 's no, absolutely nothing in there and The onions just sweat down very, very slowly for like three hours, and that they go they go very, very sweet and it becomes the base of the dish um and then you add your berbere always um and it just becomes this very richly spiced sauce and there's some butter in there, lots of black cardamom, which itself has a very smoky flavour. So that's really interesting. um And then we mm. used, i what I did was I smoked some lamb shanks. Um, I actually smoked them the day before, and took them around with me. And then we we put them into the Sydney sauce to finish cooking. So we had this wonderful sort of spice, smoky sauce, and these very smoky lamb shanks that finished cooking very slowly. And that was one of our dishes. And then the other one we did was um, awase wings. And awase is another berbere sauce, but it's sort of hotter, spicier. And, and they actually had already adapted um, this, the traditional recipe to make their own awase sauce. So I think they use a bit of soy sauce and just other sort of umami-laden ingredients to just give it that real boost. And we tossed that with some quickly grilled chicken wings. And honestly, they are so delicious. If you like really intense spicy umami rich foods that is a recipe for you
0: so that's kind of like i mean that sounds like a long cook a long weekend cook it's for people who really love to get all their ingredients together and settle yeah. in and have some friends around to eat the result of it i mean it would have taken half a day wouldn't it to to prepare all that really. yes
1: these are these are recipes that are more when you're in it for the long haul and you really just Want, you know if you're lucky enough to have a, a weekend day that's free which i think is like gold dust <laughs>
0: yeah. which a lot of people do yeah. i mean a lot of people do set aside their you know a day a weekend in a month mm. or whatever to do something amazing and and this is absolutely bang on i mean that's my it? idea of heaven to be honest just have a free sunday
1: And just start cooking something in the morning and then to eat it about sort of two, three o'clock in the afternoon.
0: And that is just such a relaxing way to spend some time. And if the weather's on your side, then all the better. Absolutely. T- tell me a little bit about your background, Helen. Then You trained as a psychologist, didn't you? This is a, you? You came to food writing as a sort of a second career. What was the link between the two before we go on to your fourth food?
1: Yes, note? I did train as a psychologist. Um, I went to university um, to study psychology. Then I did a master's in health psychology and then finally a PhD in psychological medicine. Um, and I worked in the psychology of health and illness, rheumatology and oncology and um, finally in diabetes. Um, and I was a researcher. Um, and as much as I did love that work, and I really did love that work, um, I had always been obsessed with food. And I think, I don't know why, but I just never had the confidence to really pursue it as a career. And then what I did was I started at one of the very first food blogs um, about, must be at least 15 years ago, if not longer. And in those days, there really weren't many food blogs at all. I mean, now there are millions, but. It really was a very small community and we all loved each other. (laughs) Nobody was making any money out of it whatsoever. The (laughs) idea of making money out of a food blog in those days was just hilarious. Um, And we were just, we didn't really use social media then. This was before I was even on Twitter. So we would just comment on each other's blogs and say, hello, this is me, leaving a link back to our own blog. And then that's how you would find new people. Then, of course, when social media came along, it it exploded and it, it was much easier to find a community. Anyway, um, I just began to get more and more attention for the blog and picked up bits of work and then eventually made the transition.
0: What were you writing about? Just recipes
1: mainly. But I also did build up quite a following for just writing about Peckham when I moved there, just just cooking with ingredients that I found there and um, just writing about interesting people. Um, But yes, I've retired the blog actually very, very recently. It was called Food Stories and um, it was just time to let it go.
0: When you were a psychologist, you used uh, some work for your PhD that your fourth food Mm. moment shares. Tell us this extraordinary story of this strange coincidence. It was
1: so bizarre. It was actually uh, one of my first ever jobs in psychology when I was what is called an assistant psychologist, which is a job that you have to have if you want to get anywhere in psychology. Um, And I worked on what is now a very famous study called um it was about uh, life events and depression so the, in, in those days there wasn't very much research about the link between life events and depression so for example now we know if you get divorced or you move house or you know something else happens to you um you're quite likely to have a period of low mood afterwards but there was no sort of formal research on this it was a very very long term study so it was conducted over a, you know 10-15 years Anyway, if you work in psychology, you know, it, you probably know what it is. <laughs> I'm not expecting anyone else to be familiar with it. Um, anyway, so I was I commissioned a lady called Dr. Andrea Oskis. Uh, she's a psychologist whose specialist field is um, work on attachment. And I commissioned her to write a piece for my magazine, Pitt. And I, I got back in touch with her because I knew she was of Greek Cypriot heritage. And I said, look, um, I know that your, your auntie makes chef Taya. <laughs> kebabs which are the little lamb kebabs wrapped in caul fat and she said oh yes auntie and julia yes she makes she makes them they're fantastic and when we started talking it turned out that this this study that i worked on this famous study was the basis of her entire career <laughs> and i just it's the first time really that i've ever had any crossover of the two worlds that i've worked in so it was really strange for me because you asked me what's the link between you know uh, your your two careers and really the answer is like none <laughs> until that moment <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's not that's not true that's not what I pick up from the book I mean I'm very very interested in food and psychology although I would put it down to food and identity and mm. you know food and food and culture is a, it's, a, it's about who we are you talk about food and attachment in your in your fourth food moment and I, f- I think that that comes from an absolutely a sense of, you know, the same thing about who we are, how we live our lives. Mm. I mean, tell us a little bit about what you get a sense of having written the whole book, all these people you've written about, you've told their stories. It's all about food mm. and attachment.
1: It is. Yeah. I mean, it's it's food as part of a person's cultural identity. It, it's food as, uh, attaching oneself to a place in time, perhaps a place that you no longer live, or somebody that, somewhere that you're not able to go back to, and it's about just you know, take, recreating a little part of that wherever you are in the world now. And I think, especially for somebody like Macta, who um, has not been back to Eritrea in a long time, that's really something that is very important to her in terms of her own identity. So, uh, I, you know, I think that's just a wonderful, wonderful thing, and I'm glad that barbecue can be a part of that.
0: Andrea says it so beautifully, Mm -hmm. actually, you know, Andrea lives in two places. And when she goes back to her homeland of Cyprus, it's where she feels absolutely alive. She talks about the performance of the dinner you know, the dinner in Cyprus as opposed to the dinner here, you know, the the masses of family around the table, the barbecue, the, 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 the reaching out and getting the ingredients from the land. It's all about connection, isn't it? And you compare that. I remember when I came back from a family holiday in Spezies and, you know, we'd eaten like that and witnessed everybody eating at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, you know, old grannies and children running around. Well, not so much the <laughs> grannies running around, but little children running around the grannies. Everybody eating these vast, at these vast tables with masses of food. And, and I just, I felt a real pang to be going home. And I remember sitting back in Brighton, watching telly, having a glass of wine at nine o'clock in the evening and thinking, God, this time mm. last week, you know, I was just about to go out. <laughs> And I felt a sense of real depression, actually, thinking, oh, here we go, the summer's over, winter's coming, you know, telly and wine, you know, the family's all gone back to their various places. That sense of connection with what food is all about is absolutely integral to our well-being, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And like you were saying about the way Andrea describes it is perfect, because she says, you know, nothing can recreate that that sense of fun, just pure, sheer fun and joy that you get from having a barbecue where, you know, people would be uh, having a barbecue. She said the mood instantly changes. You know, the the kids would start jumping into the swimming pool and, you know, her auntie runs off to the shops. And she also said that there's a real, always a sense of spontaneity about the barbecue. You know, it's something that you can just decide to do in the spur of the moment and then it, it says to everybody, it sends a message that says, right, now we're going to have fun. It's not just like now we're going to have dinner. It's now we're going to have something to eat, but it's going to be convivial. It's going to be fun. There might be a few drinks if that's what you're into, you know, and it, it's just about creating a certain mood. And I think barbecue really has a way of doing that. It's very, very special.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, as we look forward to a summer ahead and I can almost smell the charcoal in the street, London has changed enormously. I wonder if the stories from the diaspora is, as Britain becomes more and more multicultural, I wonder if those smells will eke out into the streets and country lanes of the rest of Britain. C- can you see that? Or what does Britain smell like for <laughs> you in about 20 years'
1: time? I really hope so, because, you know, it's not a case of, I think, you know, there's a there's a, a tendency to talk about these different cultures in, in terms of discovery and They've actually always been there. You know, these people have always been there. They've always been cooking this way. It's just that we've not been interested. So I really, really hope that these stories in the book can maybe give people a little bit of a flavour, a little bit of an idea of what else is out there to try. Um, And for me, the the more that these different kinds of barbecue and techniques spread around the country, the better. But, you know, let's wait and see. (laughs) It's, It's a turbulent time.
0: Well, it breaks down the kind of some of the issues of race. I remember interviewing um, a Greek chef in Melbourne who told me that when his family came over from the homeland um, to Melbourne back in the 1950s, um, you know, all the Greeks were called wogs, which stood for wine, olive oil and garlic. And uh, he said the the, the racism was just absolutely endemic in the school playground Mm. until the Sunday lamb spit roast out in the garden. And then, of course, all the kids, you know, would line up like Bisto kids, you know, finding their way to the Greek kids' gardens. Yeah. And that's where they knew the best food was. You know, we're bringing together kind of, you know, a, a cultural heritage from all over the world of live fire cooking. And it's coming to Britain and, and mixing with our own, own love of the Barbie. What would you want to say to where Britain is now in this kind of divided nation, uh, our mixed emotions about people coming in and bringing their their food with them what 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 did you want to achieve with this
1: I suppose what I wanted to achieve is that what I wanted the message that I wanted to get across is that when I was growing up you know there was no exposure to any different cultures I grew up in an extremely white village in Gloucestershire um, and you know the only the only barbecue I ever went to we it would just be the burnt sausages and the guy in the beer and you know, cremating them over charcoal and and they were probably still raw in the middle. And I think Ben Chapman, who I interviewed about Thai barbecue cookery, put it really well when he said, look, for many cultures around the world, barbecuing is simply called cooking. And, you know, there's all these wonderful techniques to discover out there that are not just fast grilling some sausages and burgers. You know, there are all sorts of, for example, in Thai cooking, there's um, many more sort of slow grilling techniques. Um, you know, some cultures will use spices in a different way. You know, when you're cooking a, a Turkish or Czech bas- bashi, you're using the embers that are very, very low and cooking things very, very slowly. So there's not just one way of doing it. And I think, I think that's a, a sort of mantra that we can all take forwards, really, over the next few years. There's not just one way of being. There's not just one way of doing it. So
0: open your mind and you might find
1: something fun
0: and delicious thanks for listening you can read the transcripts to the show at jilliesmith.com just click on podcasts please do get in touch on social media i'm at cooking the books with Smith on instagram and that's where you can follow my adventures in cookery with leith's online you can check the show notes and on instagram for full details and follow the links to get cooking the books discounts on leith's cookery courses
1: and i'll see you next week